Amen. You may be seated. Let's take God's word together and turn to the book of Acts. Good to see Philip and Jenny with us. Make sure you greet them if you haven't done so. All the way from Liverpool with us today. Also, I'm very encouraged. Yesterday, we celebrated the wedding of Shota and Natalia. And they're here this morning. Now, I've only known a handful of of, uh, married couples who've done this. Married on a Saturday and still came to church the next day. That's the way it ought to be. That's the way it ought to be. And I'm glad to see them here this morning and rejoicing, praising God. Some of their friends from Germany are here. Make sure you, you uh, greet them if you haven't done so already. But uh, Acts chapter 2, this is on the church calendar, the day that we remember Pentecost. And it is figured out, as I met, met, mentioned to the children a moment ago, it's seven weeks after Passover. And uh, this is a Jewish festival, a Jewish feast. And uh, it was and still is, but we also now have a New Testament celebration that is centered around this great day. And so we're going to talk about this today, God willing. This is the second of three great Jewish feasts that were celebrated at Jerusalem every year. Exodus chapter 23, if you want to turn there or just listen, and I'll read it for you. Exodus 23, verse 14, Moses has been given this These instructions from God himself, three times, Exodus 23, verse 14, thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded thee in the time appointed of the month Abib. For in it thou camest out from Egypt and none shall appear before me empty. Can you turn me up a little bit there, Leonardo? And the feast of harvest... Here we go, it's your second feast. The feast of harvest, the first fruits of thy labors, which thou hast sown in the field. And the feast of ingatherings, which is in the end of the year, when thou hast gathered in thy labors out of the field. Three times in the year, all thy males shall appear before the Lord God. Now there are seven Jewish feasts in the calendar and in the Jewish system, but these three were, it was expected of Jewish males that they would make a visit to Jerusalem every year. And the word, the word, the Greek, the word Pentecost is actually a Greek word that means 50. It's not found in the Old Testament because, of course, it comes from a Greek word. And, uh, but the word in the Old Testament, the name or title of the feast in the Old Testament was either the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks. It was to be celebrated, as I mentioned, seven weeks after Passover, 49 days, Therefore, on the 50th day, we have this day of Pentecost. It was, for the nation of Israel, a feast of grateful recognition of the early harvest. They praised God. There were two harvests, an early and a latter. They praised God for the early harvest and by faith trusted God for the latter harvest. Amazing, really. On the Jewish calendar of events it's something like this Passover started it all off with the the feast of unleavened breads and then there's a series of other celebrations in between until we came to this six seven weeks later celebration of Pentecost and this great celebration was a pilgrim festival so men Jewish men from all over wherever they were they were to report back to Jerusalem for this festival in fact it was a part of Jewish law It was a Jewish holiday. Nobody worked on Pentecost. 
Nobody went to school on Pentecost. And no matter who was with you, your servants, visitors, Gentiles, whoever was around, they all were brought in to this great celebration. We find that in Deuteronomy chapter 16. And it was a celebration that included giving. For a lot of people, that's not their idea of celebration, but that's exactly what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse number 9. Seven weeks shalt thou number unto thee, begin to number the seven weeks from such time as thou beginnest to put the sickle to the corn, and thou shalt keep the feast of weeks unto the Lord thy God with a tribute of a free will offering of thine hand, which thou shalt give unto the Lord thy God, according as the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, and thou shalt rejoice before the Lord thy God, thou and thy son, and thy daughter, and thy manservant, and thy maidservant, and the Levite that is within thy gates, and the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow that are among you, in the place which the Lord thy God hath chosen to place his name there. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, Thou shalt observe and do these statutes. What an amazing day. Now, the Jewish people were much better at this than we are. They understood that when God commanded them to go and praise God, that they ought to do it. And they were much better at it than New Testament Christians. They would literally walk through the streets with cheering and dancing and raising, lifting up of hands to God with singing even if they didn't feel like it. Now, let's be honest. We live in a generation when people say, if I don't feel like it, I'm just not going to church. I don't really feel like it today, so I'm not going. But they understood what it meant. In fact, we read it in the Old Testament. I'll offer unto thee the sacrifice of praise, even when I don't feel like it. I'm going to give to God what is his because he is worthy. They understood that this was not about them. It was about him. And the sooner a child of God can come to that conclusion, the better off you'll be. The sooner we realize that all of this is not about us. This is about God. It's not about how we feel and what we want and whether we feel up or down. This is about what God is worthy of. He's worthy of all praise and adoration. He's worthy of all that we have and all that we are. Jewish people understood that at least in part. But if you fast forward to the book of Acts chapter 2, the reason we refer to this great event as the day of Pentecost, and when I say that, when I say, do you know about the day of Pentecost, everybody immediately, their minds go to that day in the book of Acts when the Spirit of God descended upon the early church and all the apostles spoke with other tongues and all who were there were amazed. And on that day, Peter stood up and preached, and 3,000 souls were saved. That's what we think of when we hear the day of Pentecost, because that happened on the Jewish day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, Paul read it just a moment ago, and I want you to look at it now with me. As New Testament believers, we celebrate this day of Pentecost in a different way. We celebrate it, first of all, because on that day, a prophecy was fulfilled. If you read the account given in Acts chapter 2, the Bible says in verse number 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came as a sound 
there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire and it sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Because remember, all of these Jewish men had to come to Jerusalem for this feast. And now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? He gives the list of, of nationalities, how they heard in their own language, in their own tongue, all the wonderful works of God. And the Bible says they were all amazed. Imagine the apostles waiting together in Jerusalem where they were commanded to be, there with the apostles, with the disciples. And as they were there, in this room together, the Spirit of God came. We'll come in a moment and talk about a promise fulfilled. We're talking about a prophecy fulfilled. The Spirit of God came and they began to demonstrate that they were different than everybody else. That was the evidence of the Spirit of God upon them and in them. And when the whole city began to hear about it, the whole city came to where they were. They weren't all there together. They were The apostles were by themselves. And then as the city began to hear of what was happening, they all began to gather around. There must have been thousands, probably tens of thousands, if 3,000 were saved. Think about it. Imagine the sheer volume. Probably before everybody started coming, there was probably a congregation even smaller than this meeting together, intimately together, in unity, in prayer, when the Spirit of God came. And then imagine that all of Oxford hearing what was happening here would come and gather and tens of thousands. Can you imagine that visually, that picture? Tens of thousands of people trying to get near to hear and see what was going on. No microphones, no speakers, no way of amplification except the Holy Spirit himself. When they got there, they were all shocked. Men from all different nations. We have something of the sort here today. Many different nationalities represented here. And as the apostles spoke with different tongues, every man heard in their own language what they were saying. It was a miracle. An absolute miracle. But some, the Bible says, mocked. It's always the case, isn't it? They're always mockers when the Spirit of God is at work. Others mocked, said, these men are full of new wine. They're drunk. They're all drunk. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words, for these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet 
Joel. This is the fulfilling of a prophecy. Peter himself explains to the thousands what's taking place. This is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and all my servants and all my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Now that's a prophecy. That prophecy is found in the Old Testament book of Joel chapter 2 verse 28. Literally, I read it here for you. Joel chapter 2 28. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Now what he meant by all flesh was all people. Not just Jewish people. Gentiles. Every tribe. Every nation. Every tongue. I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. He said, not just upon the Jewish people and not just upon the, uh, the upper class Jewish people, but upon every kind of person. Now that should give hope to you and I. No matter your background, no matter what country you come from, no matter your, your social status, no matter. This prophecy is for all people. And I will show wonders in heaven and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Now this event was prophesied to take place before the Lord Jesus returned the second time and the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Now, amazing that in the book of Acts, it was recorded in the early church. This isn't, this is only weeks after Christ has died and risen again. Only weeks after. If you remember in the book of Acts chapter 1, the Lord Jesus told them to tarry in Jerusalem. Wait. Scriptures tell us in, in verse number 4 of Acts 1, being assembled together with them, he commanded that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, which ye have heard of me. This day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God was poured out upon the church was a prophesied event. It was a day that the believers were to be looking for. Most of them hadn't had no idea they were to be looking for it. And God in his infinite wisdom included it in the prophecies of Old Testament so that when it did come, it would be understood. Although those prior to the day of Pentecost coming really had no idea what they were looking for really had no idea what to expect. It's interesting, John the Baptist prophesied of it as well. He told us in John chapter, pardon me, in Matthew chapter 3, do you remember this? 
He said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Joel the prophet prophesied of it, and then John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Savior, prophesied of this event. It also was the fulfillment of a promise. Jesus promised his disciples was when he was on the earth, he said, I've got to go. But don't worry, in this famous chapter, John 14, just before he is to be arrested and on that last evening together, on John chapter 14, he tells them that I'm going away and you know where I'm going. And remember, Thomas said, Lord, we know not uh, where you're going and uh, we don't know how to get to where you're going. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He explains that he's going away. And he says in verse number 15, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. He said again in verse number 25, these things have I spoken unto you being yet present with you, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. Jesus promised. He promised that when he left, he would talk to the Father and they would send a comforter who would never leave us nor forsake us. He promised. In Acts chapter 1, he reminds them of that promise. He has been crucified. He has been risen. He is revealing himself to the apostles and disciples before he ascends into heaven. And just moments before he ascends into heaven, he says unto them, wait for the promise of the Father, which, he, which saith he, you've heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence, or not very long after this. And when they were therefore come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost is come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth when he'd spoken these things he was taken up Jesus promised when he was alive I'm going to send the comforter then he reminded them after he was crucified and risen and before he ascended he says look you're going to have to wait because the Holy Ghost is going to come upon you you're going to be baptized, we're told very plainly, with the Holy Ghost. In a very short time, you will be baptized with Him, by Him, with Him and by Him. You will have Him come upon you, and you will have power, we're told. He promised. But if you're not careful, you will read the book of Acts chapter 2 and you will only look at it like a historical event. And that's dangerous. It is an historical event. 
There are two extremes usually when looking at Scripture. And most people take one extreme or the other. One extreme is that you look at it as just a historical fact, an event that has no relevance to me today, except that it happened. The other extreme is that you try to recreate the day of Pentecost. I know people who are all the time trying to recreate the day. Of, it cannot be recreated. The day of Pentecost was a prophesied event, just like the birth of Christ was a prophesied event. You can't recreate the birth of Jesus. The death of Christ was a prophesied event. You cannot recreate the death of Jesus Christ. You cannot recreate a prophesied event. It has been prophesied. It has been fulfilled. It has happened. But at the same time, let us be careful that we look at this and say that has no application to me at all today. Because it does. This is the day that marks the empowering of the New Testament church that began and should continue until Jesus returns. There is no period between this day that took place and the day that Jesus returns where the church loses its power. You don't find that in Scripture. There is no period in the New Testament where the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit and then all of a sudden God takes back that baptism or that empowering and the church is weak and non-effective until Jesus comes back. You don't find that at all. But unfortunately, sometimes people create a theology that makes it this way. Sometimes we go beyond what is given to us in Scripture and make statements that don't need to be made because we react to people maybe who have taken one extreme or the other. We react to people who are trying to recreate Pentecost and we react to that and say, no, 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 you can't recreate Pentecost. That was the thing of the past. But if you're not careful, you will look at it really as a thing of the past that has no effect on me today. And that's dangerous. That's dangerous. If that's the case, then we're dead, powerless, frightened, waiting for Jesus to come and do something. And is that not a good description of much of Christianity today? Dead, frightened, waiting that Jesus would do something. And he will. He's coming again. But let us not forget he has done something. He has indeed done the greatest thing for you in sending the Lord Jesus, sending, coming himself to die for you, to shed his blood for you, to wash away your sins and to be risen from the grave, proving that he has conquered death, sin, and hell. But then also sending to us the comforter to indwell us, to live inside of us, so that we might be guided through this dark world and empowered in this dark world. And if you don't know anything of the guidance of God's Spirit or the power of God's Spirit, then you, my friend, are missing what Jesus promised all of us. This promise, we're told in the same sermon, Acts chapter 2, in verse number 39, verse number 37, now when they heard this, when the congregation heard the sermon of Peter, they were 
pricked in their heart, and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Can I just say for a moment, that should be the way all of us respond when we hear the gospel. Peter preaches the gospel. He talks about the prophecy that explains what's happening on that day, and then he preaches the gospel. And they say, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promise is unto you. Now, some say, well, that, these are Jews. Remember, they're all Jews gathered together. The promise is unto you and to your children. Look at the next phrase. And to all that are afar off. That's Gentiles. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. This was not just for 12 men in Acts 2. This was not just for the early church or for the Jewish believers. This is for all of God's children. We might be filled with his spirit baptized, now that makes people nervous when you talk like that, but it's a New Testament principle and doctrine to be baptized with the Spirit of God. And you need it. We need it. We looked recently about what the word baptism means. To be fully whelmed. To be immersed. And that's this picture. To be baptized with the Holy Ghost is to be fully whelmed inside and outside. Baptized with the Holy Ghost, baptized in the Holy Ghost, into the family of God. Because, would you look here? You cannot live this Christian life without the Spirit of God. You can't. No Christian has ever been able to live this life without the Spirit of God. If you'd have nothing, Jesus said, pardon me, Paul said in Romans that if you have not the Spirit of God, then you do not belong to Him. Nothing to do with Him. And do not let those who maybe have abused the person of God's Spirit and the practice of God's Spirit and gifts that we read in the New Testament, don't let people who have abused those things put you off so that you're afraid to even talk about Him because you can't live without Him. And you certainly, we cannot minister without Him. Without the Holy Spirit's power. Without the empowering of God's Spirit. You can preach all you want to, but your words will fall on the ground like dead seeds. It'll be just words. But if the Spirit of God accompany our preaching and our ministering, then when we preach the gospel, men and women will be saved. Lives will be changed. Captives will be set free. The brokenhearted will be healed because God's Spirit will do the work. You can't do it. I can't do it. I can't heal a broken heart. I can't, I can't set a captive free, someone who's been enslaved to sin for years. I can't set myself free, let alone somebody else. But the power of God's Spirit can. And that's what we need. 3,000 souls saved on that day. Can you imagine? There were no, there were no flash. There was no flash. There was no, no great big signs and colorful lights and rock and roll bands and banners and 
There was no display of the flesh at all. There was only revelation of God by His Spirit. And everyone knew it. That's why 3,000 men and women were born again on that day. Because they said, this is of God. And no one can doubt it. That's what the church is missing. That's what the church of 2023 is missing. Paul said, when I came, I didn't speak unto you with enticing words of man's wisdom. I came in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Where's that today? In our evangelism, where's that in our Sunday school classes? Where's that in our sermons? Where's that in all that we do? Where is it? I want you to look with me and I want to just draw your attention to a couple of key observations. First observation is in verse number one of chapter two, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Meaning, you and I cannot make this happen as much as I want to. I can't. Because if you remember, the Lord Jesus told us in John chapter 3, the wind bloweth where it listeth in the same way the Spirit moves where He wants to move. We don't control. The Spirit is not our genie in a bottle, pardon me. The Spirit of God is not residing at our bedside in a little rusty brass lamp and that when we rub it and come on now, I've got something I want you to do. That's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. But there are a few things that will help us to be ready to be empowered by God's Spirit and to be led by Him. There are some things even in this text that will help us to understand what it is to be led and to be ready, to be moved and guided and empowered. Look at it. The Bible says in verse 1, they were all with one accord in one place. Unity. Unity. True unity, by the way. Not this ecumenical idea of unity today where let's just all get together, hold hands and sing Kumbaya. We'll all look past our differences and, you know, you don't have to believe that Jesus is God. I do, but you don't have to. And, and, uh, or you know what? You, you, you worship, uh, Allah and you think Muhammad is the last prophet. That's okay. Let's get together and, and, uh, well, you have, you, you believe salvation is by works and I believe it's by grace. That's okay. We'll just set aside all our differences and get together. That's nonsense. That's not unity. That's not unity. Unity must be based around truth. And truth cannot be compromised. Unity. They were all together with one accord in one place. Now, can I just plant a little seed in your mind and your heart? If unity was a prerequisite to the empowering of the first century church, if unity is a prerequisite for the empowering of any church, then don't you think Satan is going to attack it? 
don't you? Because he would know that if he can divide the body of Christ, then he would render the body of Christ weak and powerless. Sometimes we're so easily fooled, aren't we? Paul says, we are not ignorant of his devices. Sometimes I think we are. Because we let the accuser of the brethren come between us, dividing us. We let him plant seeds in our heart and mind, the wrong kind. I want to plant the right kind this morning. We let him plant the wrong kind, and then we start becoming planters of seeds ourselves, and we start, start sowing discord. And discord divides. In fact, the book of Proverbs, Solomon says there are seven things that God hates. The last one on the list is this, he that soweth discord among brethren. Do you know that? Would you look this way? Look this way. God hates discord. And him that sows discord amongst the brethren. He hates it. God hates it because he knows that his blessing rests upon unity. What about that famous psalm? How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in what? Unity. Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant it is. Good meaning it's right. It's, it ought to be and pleasant. It's also enjoyable. How right it is and enjoyable it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious ointment. There again, oil is always a picture of God's spirit. Like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down the beard. Even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garment. What a picture of God's spirit all over. As the dew of Hermon, as the dew that ascended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing. What, on the mountain? What, on Aaron's head? No, no, no. On unity. That's where God commanded the blessing. And you and I are very foolish if we sit and talk about the things that I don't like. And if we sit and talk about the things we, we disagree with. Trying all in the name of proper theology. That's what some people do. I said it a moment ago, true unity must be centered around truth. But if your idea of truth differs from another's idea of truth, then what you ought to do is leave, separate, or humble yourself. But to stay and put your idea of truth against another's idea of truth is to sow discord and division. And there'll never be the blessing of God. Never. They were all, the Bible says in Acts 2, all with one accord in one place. Now, by the way, they had started that in the first chapter, verse 13. When they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, Zelotes and Judas, the brother of James. These all continued with one accord 
in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. They were all together in one place, in one accord, in prayer. If you want blessing, the blessing of God, then this never happens by accident. Never has a church ever been united accidentally. You know that? Never. Never has a body ever been united accidentally. Never did a husband and wife end up married together accidentally. Oh, sorry, didn't expect to see you here at the marriage altar. Shota and Natalia, yesterday they were joined in holy matrimony that wasn't an accident, it was intentional. And a church can only be united when it is done intentionally. One accord and one spirit of prayer. If you're not praying together, if we're not praying together, there'll be no unity. None. One place, doctrinally. One place in practice. One place in prayer. Prayer. And suddenly, I like that. Suddenly, I don't know how long, they've been there many days already and praying and seeking God, agreeing. If a disagreement arose, they dealt with it. Instead of festering it, they dealt with it so that they could protect the unity. That's what you do. Do you know that? How does a marriage end up successful? Well, when a disagreement arises, you don't add fuel to the flame. You don't take sides, polar opposite sides. And try to convince one another, I'm right, you're wrong. No, 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 I'm right, you're wrong. And I'm going to throw more, I'm going to prove that I'm right. I'm going to prove that I'm right. No, you stop. You stop. Both humble yourselves. And you labor to make it right so that unity can continue in a marriage. If a disagreement arises, you know this, if you've been married for any length of time, you've got to deal with it. So that your unity, so that your marriage can know a blessing. Without that, a marriage, there's tension in the home. There's coldness in the home. And can I just say the same thing applies to a family of God. When tension arises in a family, household family, unless it's dealt with, there's always a very awkward place. Same thing in a church. But they kept it. They kept the unity. Labor. That's why we read in Ephesians chapter 4, endeavoring. You remember that? We read it just the other day, Wednesday night. We looked at it together. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. That means you're working at it. Some are working at keeping, keeping a fraction. Some are working at keeping a division. And we ought to be working at keeping unity. Satan is so clever. There they were all, I don't know how much time, but there they were, one accord, one place, in prayer, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled 
all the house where they were sitting. And the Bible says, watch this, there appeared unto them with cloven tongues like as fire and sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they began to speak, how many? All of them with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here's another thing. If we be all united and if we be all seeking the Lord in prayer, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, then when the Spirit of God moves, it'll be upon all. Not upon a few select special ones. Upon all. What an amazing picture. By the way, that's why tens of thousands of people of Jerusalem ran to that little tiny upper room. Because all of them, not one, it wasn't like Jesus who was walking through the earth, performing miracles, speaking like no man had ever spoke before. It wasn't like Jesus and he had these followers. Jesus had now given to them what he had, the spirit without measure. And everybody was shocked. The Bible says in verse 12, they were all, all amazed. I'd like to be in a place, wouldn't you? I'd like to be in a place as a church, as a local church, where all of us are amazed. Now, there were some outsiders who were mocking. But those who were a part of it, and those who saw it, they were amazed. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be wonderful when the church could be together, know the blessing of God's Spirit, the empowering of God's Spirit, all being empowered by God, and all of us being amazed that God in His goodness would bless us. I wonder what it takes to amaze you. What amazes you? I do not believe that we can recreate this day and I don't believe that it will ever be recreated but I do believe that this was the beginning. It was the empowering of the local church when the Spirit of God came upon every believer so that every believer could have the power and the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ upon them so that they could be what they were saved to be. And that continues today. Uh, it may look different. It will look different. But the Spirit of God is still alive. And He's still powerful. He's God. You remember we believe in that little doctrine we call the Trinity? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We believe He's powerful. And if he's powerful and still alive, and if he dwells within the heart of a believer, and if we are commanded today, which we are, be not drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Holy Ghost. That's a commandment to the church. If we're commanded to be filled with the Holy Ghost, then I guess we've got to ask ourselves, are we? Are we? And if not, why? 
Is there some division? Is there some something that's not right in your own heart and mind? I'm reminded of what Jesus Christ said to his, his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. The multitude came. He said, look, if, you, if you've got a problem with your brother, leave thy gift at the altar and be reconciled. You can't expect God's blessing. But I do believe there is a blessing. Multiple blessings from God that we've never tasted yet, that we've never known yet. And much of that is our fault. Not God's. Ours. I wonder today, do you know what it is to be filled with His Spirit? To be empowered by God? Do you know what it is to walk with God? By His Spirit. We can't avoid this. You can if you want to just be a part of a sophisticated social club. I doubt you'd be meeting in a tent if you did. But If you want to be part of a just another social club, and then no problem. But if we want to be a part of the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, the family of God. We want to live as we are ordained to live. It'll never be done without the person of God's Spirit. We need Him. And you don't just need Him for salvation. That's another fallacy. Well, I need Him when I get saved, but after this I got it covered. It couldn't be further from the truth. You need him. I need him. The Bible talks about the last days being so difficult, so bad, that if it were possible that even elect, the elect would be deceived. Do you understand that the last days are going to get darker and darker and more and more difficult? And if you don't know the help of God's Spirit, you'll never, never make it. We need him. That's why we've been given him. God has given to us the spirit of God. May we move and live according to his guidance. We started talking about baptisms a number of weeks ago and we will continue to talk more about this in the days to come. This is Pentecost the day we remember when God's Spirit first empowered the church and still empowers the church. May the Lord Jesus help us, each one of us, to know what it is to be filled with His Spirit and empowered by Him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask of thee, guide us, help us. We confess we are oftentimes so proud that if it were possible, we would try to teach thee. We're so arrogant that if it were possible, we'd like to sit the 12 apostles down and sort out their theology. I pray 
that you might humble us. Help us to humble ourselves so that we don't have to be humbled. Help us, Lord, to believe that there is more to the Christian life than just saying a prayer, agreeing intellectually to a few great ideas. Help us to believe that by faith we can become thy children and that by faith we become joint heirs with Christ that all that he had is ours. Help us to believe that you have indeed sent your spirit to live inside of us, to empower us and to guide us, to convict us where we need it. And we pray that we as a church locally, this body of believers, might recognize the need. Help us to recognize our lack and our insufficiency so that we might be caused to fall upon our knees and ask of thee, Lord, to empower us, to help us. We ask of thee, Lord, forgive us that we have tried to do so much in our own strength. Forgive us, Lord, that we brush over verses like these and we are easy to pick up on other commandments, but to neglect this one to be filled with thy spirit. Help us, Lord, not to grieve the Holy Spirit, not to quench the Holy Spirit, not to lie to him. Help us, we pray. We ask of the Lord, grant unto us what we need. Sometimes we don't even know what we need. Help us, we pray. Empower this church and thy people that we might be more effective and useful in thy kingdom in these days. And we ask this in Jesus Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.